Welcome to Agile Engineering. A podcast covering subjects like DevOps, Agile, Development, Cloud, and more. Featuring Liam Gulliver, Pete Gallagher, Louise Paling, Misha Bell, and Jonathan Ralph. With Tom Garrity. Welcome to the Agile Engineering Podcast, episode number 10. In this episode, we're going to be joined by Tom Garrity, and we're going to be talking about psychological safety. Joining me, as always, are my co-hosts, Louise Paling. Hello. Misha Bell. Hi. Pete Gallagher. Hey there. And as I mentioned, uh, Tom Garrity is joining us as a guest. Hi. Unfortunately, Jonathan can't make it today as he's on holiday, but let's get straight into it. Tom, talk to us about what psychological safety is. Great question. So, yeah, yeah, psychological safety, there's a fairly well-known short definition that is psychological safety is a belief that one will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. That's coined by Dr. Amy Edmondson when she was doing some research back in 19... 19- 99 into clinical teams, clinical teams with different outcomes. She found that teams with good outcomes actually made more mistakes than teams with bad outcomes. And she thought that doesn't make sense. That doesn't sound right. So she dived into the data a bit more and found that it was actually the teams that had good outcomes were admitting more mistakes than the teams who uh, had bad outcomes. So what do you mean by good outcomes and bad outcomes? In this case, it was clinical teams. And essentially, that was people dying or other bad things happening to people. That's quite bad. Um, but, yeah, it's yeah, fairly, fairly, de- fairly decisively <laughs> bad. Yeah. 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 I think that probably mirrors my experience. There can be an impetus to hide when things aren't going very smoothly to just talk about when things have gone well, at least. Certainly my first company I introduced Agile into, uh, the idea of failing fast. You couldn't talk about it because you used the word fail. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah, I mean, how are you meant to ever get anything resolved and make sure that you're not just like ticking boxes for like, you know, compliance or whatever the thing may be, if you're not actually admitting when you've done something wrong? (laughs) Yeah, I can see how that would, yeah. Not lead to yeah, good things. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, there are a lot of teams that, that don't possess a great deal of psychological safety and will hide their mistakes, hide their fears, hide their ideas or mistakes. And they won't challenge other people in the team because they're afraid of what the response might be. And of course, we know that's you know, that's the way to stagnation. You're not going to get anywhere as a good team. Yeah, definitely. Is it a difficult problem to solve? Because it has to be almost a company-wide philosophy because if any one of that sort of chain of responsibility all the way down from the CEO all the way down to a cleaner almost doesn't buy into that concept, then somebody is going to get angry at somebody for something. And then to not pass that on is, is really difficult. And certainly then when you start building in career reviews and stuff into that and people being judged mm. by their mistakes rather than their successes. I just wondered what your experience with that. Yeah, so that's that's a fantastic question because there's there's some really interesting stuff around this, around what what I call the safety gradient, the psychological safety gradient that exists around a team and the wider organization. So where you've got a wider organization that has a poor culture 
And there's a measure of culture, in fact, called Westrom's typology. Three different kinds of culture, bureaucratic, pathological, or generative. Generative is the good one. Pathological is the <laughs> nasty one. And bureaucratic is the big clunky one. If you're a team lead and you're trying to build a great team with psychological safety, you can do that within your team because you've got the power to do so, but you might not have the power to do so outside of your team. And so you've got a, a steep gradient. The steeper the gradient, the harder it is to maintain, the more stressful it is to maintain. I guess there's been a lot of places that I've worked, at least, where the culture would be best described as a culture of fear. Um, and that's fear of not just putting your hand up, but fear of change. Some of that, I think, has been bred from that fear of putting your hand up in the first place. Especially in, in, in modern software engineering with movements like DevOps, which is all about failing fast, failing safely as well, and, and learning from those failures so that you can pivot quickly. There isn't really a place for unsafe psychological cultures yeah. um, in the workplace these days, I don't think. Mm. I'm actually really pleased you brought up DevOps, because part of the evidence that I use to, to suggest to people that we should be building psychological safety, um, not just because it's a nice thing to have and it feels nice, but actually the, the Accelerate State of DevOps report from last year highlights psychological safety as a key fundamental factor that supports productivity and delivery, both within a wide organization, but also within software delivery teams. The point being is that without psychological safety, you're not going to do DevOps interesting yeah, i'd agree with that i think the way you can make failure work without using the word failure is by trying to do things in sandboxes and i think that helps when you're doing devops so all of a sudden it's not failing it's learning something or running an experiment or as we talk about on the podcast a lot hypothesis driven development and you just try and make sure that everything you do is done in such a way that it doesn't have a lasting impact on your production environments and well i'm running an experiment if the experiment was successful great it gets pushed into to production if it wasn't ah, we found something out from this experiment we ran yeah it's not a mistake it's a learning point and the bigger the learning point the better <laughs> yeah. but also the faster so not yeah. necessarily bigger but if you run a lot small but they all are very very fast it's one of the big things i get from the lean startup is you can learn something over six months, writing a whole load of code and finding out something doesn't work, or, well, can you throw a survey out instead and find out the same thing? One's a lot faster, but you you might not learn as much, but you learn it out much quicker. Yeah, I had a, uh, an old boss who called them improvement opportunities rather than learning opportunities and planned features rather than bugs and, and things <laughs> like that. But measuring success and different levels of success rather than grading failures is probably the way at least to think about if you're talking about your experiments there, what do we need to call this a success? And what points have we met there that haven't been met? How can we fix it next time so that we do meet all of those objectives? But measure you, you always succeed on some sort of level. It's very rare that you completely fail. And in actual fact, spotting that you're going to be completely failing could be gauged as a success if you do it early enough because you've saved yourself 12 weeks of a sprint or something because you know that this is just a complete waste of time but you're still succeeding on some sort of level there but you don't phrase it as though that is a complete fail and a waste of time why did we do that because you will just never do anything if you get stuck in that mindset mm -hmm. yeah i think you're right i mean one thing that i was i was thinking about as the conversation has been going on is the concept of ooda loops Ooh, now that? an ooda loop stands for observe orient decide act and it was something that was developed by the u.s air force Observing. to keep planes up in the air and from being shot down 
Cool. Nothing to that, do with pot noodle then. Nothing. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that sort of safety is essential it, to be able to do that feedback loop. Some of those are going to are going to fail. Yes. All right. In in this particular example, if you fail, you're getting shot down, and that's a fairly catastrophic failure. But when it comes to DevOps and software engineering, it's something that we do so regularly. We, you know, we're already doing it when we're doing our sprints, we're doing our retros. That's so important to continuous improvement and continuous learning that you have to read a culture of, of safety for people to be able to speak up and say, there's a problem here, we need to do better, and I think we can do better by doing X. I think that maybe, and Tom, you might have, might have seen this as well, that if you've got a culture where you've got a little bit of it, you might only get, say, somebody saying, there's something wrong here, and then they'll back away from the problem. Or somebody's suggesting solutions to, this is how things should be done, when that's not really solving the problem or talking about it or learning from it, it's going, no, you should just do X instead in a very dictatorship-esque manner. Yeah, so there's and there's a couple of points there, because there's a whole realm of work around psychological safety and DevOps and resilience engineering, and and the point that by implementing a lot of DevOps practices, resilience engineering practices, you're building the existential, the technological part of safety, and thereby building the psychological safety. But... Your, your other point actually is really in, interesting about the... So there are four stages of psychological safety in your team. And the first stage is a simple sort of inclusion stage, a, a member stage, where, where it's just safe to be in the team and it's just about being present. The second stage is about learning. And so learning in a team requires a bit more safety. Then the third stage is contributor safety. So you need, again, even more psychological safety as part of the team to do that, to, to, to be able to put your ideas your suggestions and use your unique experiences to, to give to the team without being worried that they're going to be thrown back in your face or rejected and the fourth stage is the most difficult stage to achieve it's, it's the the stage that requires most safety and that's challenger to be able to challenge each other's ideas and, and concepts and, and and actions that's cool you mentioned at the top of the show that you can't really do devops without psychological safety one of the key parts of devops is automating things um, like automating mundane tasks things that people have to do on a daily basis that are inefficient that should be automated but if you've got no psychological safety and you don't want to admit to somebody that you've been doing this really inefficient thing for ages then how are you ever going to get that sorted does that kind of feed into one of the kind of ways that you would mean by we can't do devops without psychological safety to a degree yeah yeah i mean you i mean you can't do much without psychological safety yeah uh, <laughs> i i've been speaking this week to elite sports coaches ex officers in the royal marines people in large corporate organizations all about psychological safety and we might use different languages and use different terms and we yeah. might do it in different ways but fundamentally you're not going to achieve much of it without psychological safety that's fair When you've got movements like DevOps and, and Agile and everything, they, where they're built on continuous improvement, you can't continuously improve without learning, and every failure is a learning opportunity. They should be looked at as something yeah. absolutely positive, because if it's, if it's just a failure that you don't address, you are just going to repeat the same failures again and again and again. If you aren't open to, to talking about your failures or talking about things that have gone wrong, and that could be at the point of software development, or even something's gone wrong in production, 
you will just continue to repeat those same mistakes. And that takes a toll on teams and people, surely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it, in fact, there's an interesting point here about because we work with DevOps and we work with Agile and we, we talk about feedback loops all the yeah. time and everything is feedback loops and everything is checking to see whether the, the thing we did did the thing that we wanted it to do and whether we can do it better next time. And that's, you know, that's what we're doing all the time, whether it's technology or people. One of the great things about building psychological safety, if you're going to do it explicitly with your team, is that you can actually start and measure the degree of psychological safety in your team. There's a set of 10 statements that I have on, on my website and, and they're available in other places, but you can do a survey and ask these 10 questions and score agreement with these 10 statements, rather. And depending on the outcome of the agreement of those different statements means you can take different measures to improve your psychological safety. They're all statements around things like, if you make a mistake on this team, it is never held against me. Or, we work as a team to find the systemic root cause. It's safe for me to take a risk. It's easy for me to ask others on this team for help. And nobody on this team would deliberately act in a way that undermines me. I was going to ask if there's any uh, specific tools out there that help people. And I obviously can't use a tool to generate psychological <laughs> safety, but you can use tooling to generate the learning and generate the metrics that you need to be able to take that learning and, and turn that feedback loop into something that you can use to let people be a bit more open and perhaps instrument more of what they're doing. It's not really a software tool, but I think the ultimate uh, example of this is Toyota's and Encore. Yeah. Something's not worked, pull it. And they are so serious about that. You, you still think, yeah, they've got this cord. It stops the entire production line anytime anything slightly goes wrong. And what, they're going to pull it uh, a couple of times a day? Yeah. They pull it 5,000 times a day. That's how serious they are about it. They get thanked for it. Oh, yeah. 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 It, it's expected that you will do that if anything goes wrong. It's not if a major thing goes wrong, if anything goes wrong. And I think often we're too keen to have a really complicated root cause analysis put in place, whereas actually there should be varying levels that yes, we do want to know what went wrong, why it went wrong, how we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. But that doesn't need to be in every case. Sometimes it's just a quick, oh, that was stupid, wasn't it? Really quickly, can you explain what the and on cord, uh, Toyota and on cord is, please? It's literally a cord at the Toyota manufacturing plants that when it gets pulled, the entire production line stops, the, the conveyor belts stop rolling, the production line comes to a complete halt, whoever pulls it. People swarm around that workstation to find out what the problem was. So it's a manual yeah. stop the line signal. Physical and real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whenever there is a problem, regardless of the size of the problem, it's a pull it. There is something wrong here. We need to fix it now. Cool. They fix it and then things keep going. Gotcha. Actually, to speak to Pete's point about are there tools, are there processes, and are there things that you, you can use to? To do this if you're looking for resources i've got my own website called psychsafety.co.uk that you can go to and there's a ton of stuff there there's also i've got a whole action pack that uh that you can use and, and and it's got workshops and toolkits and all sorts of surveys and other things in but fundamentally this is all about behaviors and and working with your team there's a whole stuff that you can do whether you're a leader of your team or or, or member of your team there's behaviors and stuff that you can do that 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 are important to build psychological safety around being inclusive, breaking the golden rule, don't treat other people how you would be treated because they're not you, getting the basics right, like making sure people just know what to do. And this is particularly important now that we're in remote teams, we're all distributed because 
it's very easy for people to be sitting at home without anyone around them wondering what to do next, whether they're actually any good at what they do. And so it's really important to make sure that people feel included and part of the team, even though they're remote. Obviously, I think a lot of people would use retrospectives and stand-ups to address a lot of these issues. But that the Andon called that Louise brought up makes me wonder whether or not we should be doing this on a far faster cadence than waiting until a, a predefined time, rather we should be stopping at the point. And I mean, smaller teams who work in the same office and perhaps aren't under as much stress, perhaps can just do that. They can wander across to a desk and, and, and do that. But now that we're all working remotely, that's probably harder to do, to have that conversation by the coffee machine about a problem that you might have that you would normally wait for a, a retrospective or a stand-up. So is that what you'd expect or is that what's happening? Yeah, it's critical to have retrospectives. And, and one of the important things about retros is that it's really important to remember to do them not just for failures, but for successes as well. And yeah, if you're going to look at root cause of failure, why not look at root cause of big wins or even little wins? Another thing that you can do quite frequently with your team is do a fear exercise, which is from a book called Agile Conversations by uh, Douglas Squirrel and Jeffrey Frederick. And it's a fantastic exercise where you as a team get together, you talk about your fears, you explicitly lay out some of the things that you're afraid of. These are existential fears, like uh, accidentally crashing the website or missing a sale or deploying a change that, that breaks everything. And as a team, you can talk about the mitigations for that fear. So not only are you working with your team and you're being vulnerable in front of your team, so as a leader or contributor, you're being vulnerable with your team and helping to build safety amongst your team. But you're talking about the mitigations and the actual actions that you can take to mitigate those fears. So it sounds like getting your team involved in a sort of a risk log in the traditional sense of it, but bringing it a little bit more into the modern agile DevOps world and making it much more useful and involving the people on the ground rather than some manager writing something in an Excel spreadsheet, because it's always Excel, let's face it. Yeah. That's never going to be looked at again. And more human, because it's not just what's a risk, but it's what I'm afraid of. So it might be I'm afraid of losing my job or losing my reputation or something like that. It's more human. So that's how I always build my first risk logs. If you need a risk log, you go around your team and you just say, give me your top three things that are scaring you right now. What's keeping you up at night? They're the things we should probably be worried about. Yeah. Well, with any luck, your risk log isn't going to exceed the maximum number of rows or columns in an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, I don't want it to get truncated. <laughs> Um, I was waiting for that. <laughs> but I just, just want to touch back on, on, on retros. So I've sort of been thinking this as the conversation's gone on. Now, I don't necessarily believe that this is the case, but I want to open it up to, to discussion in the group. Given retros are, especially whilst we're working remotely, such a, a, a paper-heavy task, does that not run the risk these days of them falling more into the, the going into the culture models uh, that we were talking about earlier, the bureaucratic sense? Because they're a lot more process-driven now as well. I don't think they have to be paper-based. I think a lot of people have moved towards them not being before we went remote. And there are a lot of things that can be done remotely that that mimic the way you would do it in person. What I mean by paper-based is is more, I've still got to fill out a thing. I've still got to put something, I've got to fill something in on a board. I've got to move things around. I've got to write stuff down and then almost then go through that analysis process and everything else as well. It's a process-heavy activity. Yeah, and I guess that's often how it needs to be to start with, to get people into the habit of it. 
but there are so many different ways to do to run retros. I mean, there's books out there on all of the different ways of doing it. There's Crazy Cupcakes, is it? CrazyCupcakes.org, I think, is uh, just a, a site full of different retrospective things. And some of the ones that work really well are take your team to the pub and have a chat. Yeah. Sometimes you don't need yeah. to write it down, but it, it is important, I feel, to record the big outcomes from it and, yeah. and to remember the things that have gone very well or very badly. You absolutely hit the nail on the head because fundamentally it's about building a good habit. It almost doesn't matter how you do it. Just You're just building good habits. So as long as you're doing them and, you, and, and your team are engaged, just, yeah, just do them. I'm interested in Misha's opinion, actually, and how it works in recruitment as a joining industry. And I know that you're in tech recruitment, mm-hmm. but obviously we're talking software and DevOps and stuff like that. And a lot of the principles do still apply to teams that aren't software, but how DevOps, does it work? DevOps isn't a job, Pete. Oh, God, oh, is it not? no, 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 don't, no. Don't. Not again. <laughs> Just... I can point you at a podcast where they talk about that. <laughs> but I'll allow it this one time to, for you to emphasise your point. Not too kind. Even if yeah, you're wrong. I yeah, just, I'd be interested to know. I'm guessing that not only the industry around you, but obviously your team has changed quite often. Yeah. So uh, what have you been bringing in to help that process along the way? We're a really little company. There aren't like loads of layers of management or people that you don't know. There is literally nobody that you don't know in the company. Everyone's got their own relationships that have been formed over like a number of years. Yeah, the team has changed and stuff. Actually, <laughs> a couple of people have been directly related to one of the directors. That's quite a good ready-made relationship right there. Short answer is we haven't got any formality around like psychological safety or any of the stuff that we've really discussed, but I've never really felt a need for it if there came a point where I didn't feel that I could speak my mind or say what I was worried about or when I made a mistake then I would really question my being there because there is no reason for that to be kind of pick up on on something you were saying there in fact more something that you said on LinkedIn in the past couple of days around where as a recruiter you get ghosted a lot now that has got to have a, a vast tax on your psychological well-being and in psychological safety isn't just about failure right it's about your genuine well-being how do you deal with that both as a recruiter for for yourself Misha and I guess I'm really looking to Pete for for this as well because as a sole trader I guess there's a massive weight on your shoulders uh, to be able to deliver things I talked about imposter syndrome as well, like last week, um, quite a lot, which I didn't really think about. So rejection is uh, probably about 80% of my job and the job of all of the people that I work with. We get ghosted, we get rejected. We send any kind of rejections that we get to each other and we give each other advice on how we could avoid that in future, how we could have improved it or to just generally empathise. That's a great example of psychological safety. Being in a place where you feel comfortable to send something that someone's rejecting you to the people you work with knowing that they are going to be able to help and not just going to say yeah you're crap at that obviously (laughs) but they'll in some way be able to say either it's they're wrong or well it's maybe it was you presented it this way you must feel a, a certain amount of comfort to be willing to do that and not just go and cry in the corner and pretend it didn't happen and not want to admit it to I anyone. I think I take it for granted, to be honest. I don't really think about it, but I I think it's just because failure is like the main part of 
my job. I mean, literally for the first couple of years of my career, I cried every day <laughs> because I was terrible at my job. <laughs> it was very, very difficult. I had to change fundamentally as a person um, to be any good at it. <laughs> and so you can't go through that kind of baptism of fire and come out the other end without being okay with sharing that kind of stuff. Well, actually, I left an environment where that wasn't necessarily the the case. So, yeah, it's, it's a fair point. This has brought up a lot for me. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually going to say Louise's point is, is really good. You, what you've just said there really does highlight it. And, and common shared experience where sort of everybody is used to other people failing and not putting themselves on a pedestal thinking, I can't fail because the person X over there isn't failing. And thankfully, we get quite a lot of, of tech influencers in the sphere that I'm working in who talk about imposter syndrome. People are, are constantly tweeting, um, like Scott Hanselman will tweet that he spent six hours on Stack Overflow the other day trying to figure out how to do a greater than or something along, along those lines where everybody is going to be failing all at different times and possibly all together. But if you can share and grow from that, then... I think then that will build that same cycle back up again. So you will share more and other people will then share more. And then you can take all of those learnings and build on it. You sharing those rejection letters, not only has it got it just a, a clinically, that's really good because now I know that if I contact that company, uh, I need to do something differently to what you did, or we just don't contact them because they're not interested. So there's that clinical level, but there's also the learnings that you take from, if you can at least discuss why you think you got rejected then you can feed that back. And then that, that applies to, to every different industry and, and section of an industry. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it feels to me that would be a good way of starting something like that to introduce psychological safety into a company. If you can get a group of people who can start sharing that sort of thing. It feels similar to me to sort of professional coaches where you get athletes at the top of their game and they still have somebody in there to say that thing there you could do better and who are always analysing the things that, that aren't as perfect as they could be, even though they're extremely good. So it feels like similar things. We started this saying, how do you introduce it? How do you have psychological safety if it's not supported from the top? Well, this is a way that a team could introduce it for themselves, within themselves, to get a group of people together to start discussing, we think this isn't going well, or to support each other, and maybe lunchtime sessions to sort of say, well, let's discuss things that openly we don't think are going wrong and try and introduce that open, honest discussions. It wouldn't be an episode of the podcast without plugging some wares. Pete, Jonathan and I on October the 27th are starting a live show where we're going to be probably failing quite regularly and, and doing stuff uh, called Azurish Live. There's, there's, no no, there's no probably. No, the whole point of it is we're failing all the time. It's going to be 45 minutes of three middle-aged men Googling things. And just seeing if things work. Don't uh, put yourself down. It's also going to be a lot of Stack Overflow. <laughs> oh, it's going to be Googling for, for Stack Overflow answers, yeah. But yeah, if you want to, to look at how we're going to handle that in real time, October 27th from 12pm UK time for an hour, go to twitch.tv forward slash Azureish Live, and that's Azureish spelt A-Z-U-R-E-I-S-H. And you'll be able to see us do that for real. Yeah, the way we're going to create psychological safety during that show is to just openly ridicule each other. I wanted to say, we were talking about top-down right at the very start, but I think confidence is massively important to psychological safety as well. And that's 
not always something you can control all that easily. And in fact, if you fail too often, then that knocks your confidence. And I know Misha was talking about going into a corner and crying when you were first starting. I think obviously the longer you've been doing your role, the more confident you are, because I guess you've made a lot of mistakes already and you know you can recover from them. And also you've done it with your team and you know that your team can recover from that and you've not been sacked. So, I mean, there's a level of confidence there, but can you build that by putting in place the right training is obviously one thing and and that's quite boring, but was it Louise who mentioned lunchtime sessions? And I've seen companies asking their staff to give talks at lunchtime and and not necessarily on their job, uh, but you could be, Uh, doing lightning talks on little bits and bobs of stuff that you're not particularly confident with, but you could use that as a platform to build your own confidence and it can give you that ability then to go and share your experiences. You could even write a lightning talk about failure and and use that as a learning point. Is is that something you've seen in companies? I would say they, all all those activities are facets of, of behaviors that encourage, improve and build psychological safety. I think one of the really important things to remember with with psychological safety is it's not a fire and forget one shot. Oh, I've I've done these things. I've done that workshop. Therefore, I can now go back to being that command and control manager from before. But we've now got safety. It's a constant behavior and a, and a continuous set of values that, that you maintain. There are three real key things to, to this, which as a leader or, or member of the team that you can remember. And one, I think Louise kind of suggested earlier, which is framing work as a learning problem, uh, not an execution problem. The outcome of work is a thing, but the primary outcome of work should be knowing how to do it better next time. That's the real outcome. Secondly, it's really important to acknowledge your own fallibility. As Pete, you've just said, you might be an expert, you might be an expert in DevOps or whatever it is, but you don't know if then and you get things wrong. And if you admit it when you get things wrong, even if you're not actually that confident doing so, but if you do admit it when you get things wrong, you allow others to do the same. And finally, if you model curiosity, if you ask a lot of questions, asking questions creates a need for voice in the team. And so uh, by you asking questions, people have to speak up. And by people speaking up, you'll build psychological safety. One of the most difficult things I had to get to grips with when becoming um, a scrum master and going up through management was being willing to ask the stupid question. There are no stupid questions. Sorry. There definitely are. (laughs) Usually it's the third time you've just asked the same question. Generally, even if you know the answer, sometimes the question needs to be asked. Sometimes it needs to go out there to make it public, to have things being answered. Uh, We found it on this podcast. We found ourselves talking about something and then suddenly said, wait, hang on a second. What does that acronym mean? Realising we all know it, but that's because we've worked together in some way or we've had a conversation previously about it. But there was a point we didn't know what it meant. So let's ask it here because somebody listening won't know what we're talking about and trying to make sure we explain it. Misha asked earlier about what the Andon Cord was. I know she knows what the Andon Cord was, but we need to make it explicit and it is important to ask those questions. And and however you, you get comfortable doing that, it is so important. And it really does help other people feel more comfortable in also asking questions and just jumping in and explaining what they might think is a basic thing, because maybe there's somebody else in the room who doesn't know it. This chat has really opened my eyes for like even my childhood. I never really, I could never really articulate, but I would never put my hand up because I, well, 
for quite a large part of the time I wasn't paying that much attention but when I was and I didn't understand something I really did not want to put my hand up because I was just so worried that everybody else would just laugh or think that I was stupid and it's Same. psychological safety and I never realized that's hindered my education quite considerably which is quite upsetting so you're doing some good work Tom yeah. We'll be we'll be sending you a bill for the therapy session later, Misha. Do it in schools. Would you do it in schools? You should. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just picking up on your point there slightly, Misha. Does an unsafe psychological environment worsen or breed more imposter syndrome? Massively so, yes. I thought that I was stupid. I got quite good grades. Actually, really quite good grades. And so I wasn't stupid. I just felt like I was. <laughs> Pete. <laughs> uh, I know we, obviously people don't get this, but before we came on air, we were talking about inclusivity. And that obviously must play a part in what we're talking about here as well. And we briefly touched on that where if you're addressing a room, never assume that everybody is on exactly the same level intellectually. And intellectually is a bad use of word, but experience-wise would be a better way of putting it than than perhaps other people in the room. So there could be junior developers in there and then some PMs and they're going to have a different experience level to the, the junior developer. And you can't expect the junior developer to leap up onto that same level all of a sudden. You need to be inclusive in how you run those. And, and there's often going to be meetings where that's going to happen. But I think it's more than that. And sadly, there are people that get marginalised, whether it be for race or for gender or, you know, even a religious outlook or anything. And you've got to you've got to make sure that those people feel confident and included enough to be able to raise their views because it's even harder for them. Obviously, there's the glass ceiling for, for a lot of people that you have to contend with. And yeah, unless everybody feels on the same level, if you will, and treated and subjected to the same set of ideals and nobody's going to be safe not really precisely absolutely and this speaks to the contributor safety stage of psychological safety that everyone in the team needs to contribute if the team is going to reach high performance and actually particularly in distributed and remote teams it's really important to remember to be actively inclusive otherwise you're being passively exclusive What's really important there is to, again, invite participation, ask questions, and particularly in remote meetings, but, this, but the same applies to in-person meetings, always ensure that everyone has spoken at least once before ending a meeting. I had not heard of that one before. and That's hard if the person that's not speaking is scared to speak, but I suppose that speaks to the problem then at that point. How do you do that? Uh, do, you, do you have to take them aside? Because you don't want to confront them in the middle of the meeting. Why haven't you said anything? <laughs> Unsafe! Unsafe! <laughs> it doesn't really matter what they've contributed as long as they've contributed. So you can ask them a really easy question. Ask them a question that you know they're comfortable answering, whether it's just like, what are they having for dinner tonight? As long as they've contributed, as long as they've spoken up in that room, in that meeting, that's what's important. And particularly with remote meetings, it's really difficult to see if someone's becoming disengaged or pulling away from the team in, in remote meetings because we can't see that on Zoom. Other little nuances in that as well, in that if you notice a pattern there where a certain group of people just aren't speaking, could that just be that really you're not balancing your meetings properly and that they've, they're just not going to add opinion on this that that they think is valid and perhaps it isn't valid. And there's no, no point in inviting people to a meeting that perhaps they could have just read about afterwards. <laughs> well, there's there's two reasons to be in a meeting. 
you're either giving value or you're getting value. So maybe they have no opinion, but they're absorbing a lot of information from that meeting and they're learning. At which point the question can be, the question which Liam will no doubt be asking us all soon is, what's your key takeaway from this? <laughs> or, uh, you know, have you learned something from that? That's so a really you, good point. Yeah. Yeah, if, and if, you, if you're in a meeting and you you don't think you're adding any value and you're not getting any value, please leave. Please stop wasting everybody's time. <laughs> this meeting could have been an email. That the, the, sort of <laughs> the rule of two feet, isn't it? And that's psychological safety too. Are you in a place where you can, in the middle of a meeting, saying, look, I thought this was going to be a different meeting. I've got nothing to add. This isn't something useful to me, so I'm going to leave you all to it. If you feel comfortable to do that, you're in a place that has a, a, a nice level of psychological safety around meeting culture. What's the rule of two feet? I want to know what that is now. Uh, basically what Louise just described. Willing to stand up and walk out. Use your feet to, to leave the room. <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's a literal get up and walk away if you're not getting value out of something. I like that. It makes more sense when, you know, your meetings aren't in Zoom and you just hit the leave button. Yeah. yeah that, you don't really use your feet that anymore. Seems, that seems a lot a lot ruder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, you just blame it on the rule of one click. Yeah. <laughs> so long as it's not end meeting for all, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. I guess one one question, one sort of real final question, and uh, it's not really a question, it's more of an ask from you, Tom, is is if if you're or if our listeners are in a business where they are they're, where they're struggling to get this concept of calling out failures or or even calling out successes and holding their hands up and going, look, you know what guys, I've messed up, but I think we can do it better and I've learned X. How would you suggest they get started with trying to transform that culture? Not necessarily across the business, but just within their own team? There's probably two approaches to that. And, and it would depend on what you know ticks the, the boxes of, of the team members. One is simply to start adopting these behaviours, asking questions, being inclusive and being curious and admitting your mistakes and, and start doing that and see if you can model good behaviour. If you feel that you might need to actually explicitly work towards psychological safety, you need to attack this as a thing, then you can start looking at some of the studies, such as Project Aristotle, Google's Project Aristotle in 2012, that, that determined psychological safety to be the most important thing for high-performing teams. Read the Unicorn Project or give the Unicorn Project to a few people on, on your team. Read the Phyllis Organization by Amy Edmondson, hand that out to people. Look at the State of DevOps report. If you're looking for evidence, you can build a business case for actually establishing a framework and working towards it explicitly and setting it as a goal. Yeah, I think that's some, some fantastic tips. Misha, uh, you were going to say something. How do you get around somebody that just doesn't want to change? That just flat out refuses and just won't, like, I don't know. Do you just have to, like, walk away from them? Have you ever managed to talk anyone round? That's performance management. That's That kind of behaviour isn't a peer-to-peer -peer thing to fix. What if they're a Brent, you know, from the Unicorn Project and Phoenix Project, for anybody who's listening? Don't tolerate brilliant assholes. They are more hassle than they are worth. <laughs> Nobody is irreplaceable, not even Brent. Yeah. And do you know what? There's really, uh, really useful exercise, really valuable exercise you can do with your team that is looking at team values and distilling, creating, distilling a set of team values and behaviours. One of those team values might be, don't be Brent. <laughs> Explicitly say, don't be Brent. Now, then that, by setting that value, you can call out your team members and say, you're being Brent right now. Don't. Yeah, fair. Okay. Team charters are a thing which is 
every time I've needed to do one, I've rolled my eyes, and they're always worth it. Just a team <laughs> no, hundred percent. I mean, it... just uh, just a team getting together and decide what what they believe in and how they want to behave. Oh, cool. Yeah. Have a list of this is how our team, what we think, how we should act. Well, it's, it's like the it. same as like what you were saying before. I say before uh, when you gave a talk at uh, DevOps Knots recently about uh, iceberg is melting with yes. the, with the cost steps and not just the psychological safety aspect, but the actual cultural change. And you've got No No, who who is one of these people who won't shift despite all the evidence in front of them. Shout out to the brilliant John Cotter and also your drawings. They are fabulous. <laughs> Sorry, Definitely the drawings. Yes, drawings are available on YouTube, I believe, at the uh, DevOps Knots YouTube channel. Yes. I liked, in the Unicorn Project, you, you mentioned that there a minute ago, I liked that edict, if you like, that everybody does the best with the tools and the knowledge that they had at that particular moment in time. And I guess distilling what those particular tools and, and those bits of knowledge were at that time is one of the most important things that you can do to try and figure out what it is that went wrong and then stop that from happening again if you can. But yeah, that was quite kind of enlightening when they were going through their, I think it was, was that a retrospective or a stand-up? I can't remember what they were doing at the time. But when they somebody was saying something and they just led with that, no, this is what happened and you did that because this is what you knew at the time. And it was like a light bulb going on in my head that sort of just shifted my focus away and it drives that learning. Yeah, I apologize if I, if I messed a quote up, but it was something like that. Close, close enough, Pink. I think this is probably a good point for us to, to begin wrapping up and move into our key takeaways because it's been a great discussion throughout. I mean, even within those first sort of 15 minutes, there, there was a lot to, to take on board and it's been great having you on the show as well, Tom. It'd be good to have you back at some point as well and to explore this topic a bit further because I'm sure we could probably talk about this all evening if we wanted to. Uh, but Louise, let's start with you and your takeaways. Okay, I'm going to start with uh, some real-time fact-checking. The retro website, the website that had all of the different types of retro things you can do, is tastycupcakes.org. Remembered that wrong. I think crazy cupcakes is a thing in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, maybe don't do that. (laughs) Okay, so takeaways for me, I think the focusing on the learning aspect of things, I think, is a really important thing. And where you're somewhere that, you don't feel you have the psychological safety to fail. Instead, try and focus on learning opportunities, see where you can run things as experiments, and then that focus on successes. Make sure you celebrate success. I loved Tom's idea of doing a root cause analysis of why something was successful. I think that will help with the improving confidence that was also mentioned as as being an important thing. I'm going to find it really hard, actually, because I found the entire thing Awesome. There's so much that you can learn from that. I think uh, confidence, uh, Louise highlighted that there. I think if you can build confidence in every member of your team, that their opinion and their experiences are valid and worthwhile and they're free to, to share them with everybody else. And Amisha's idea there of sharing their failure, their knockbacks with each other, I think is a really good example of that. And if everybody knows that everybody else fails, then that's going to make this whole experience far much easier. We also have a, a ritual of celebrating successes. I mean, it's not a root cause analysis. We just put some music on loud and danced. <laughs> from my kind of take- takeaways are just, it has been eye-opening for me. Like I, I don't think I've fully ever really thought about just how many aspects of a person's life psychological safety really touches. Like from, as I mentioned, you know, childhood, not feeling psychologically safe 
even though it was a, a physically safe space for me, I, I didn't have that confidence. I didn't feel like I could ask questions and that hindered me in ways that I will not ever know. <laughs> um, you know, and then to, to be in a company where I take it so for granted that I didn't even realize that we have that and, and what a great thing that is. It's given me a lot to reflect on and actually a lot of concepts and stuff that Tom and Louise in particular have mentioned. I'm definitely going to go and have a read around because, yeah, if I can kind of put my thoughts and feelings and experiences into words, then I think it will really help me disseminate that to other people that might need that kind of help. Yeah, I, I mean, from my point of view, I think it's it's really underlined how important psychological safety is to not just teams but organizations and individuals. The resources on Tom's site are something I'm going to take a look through as well because the thing that I've been struggling with with trying to convey it to people in my day job is is where do you start because it, when you say psychological safety to somebody that's such a broad topic how do you go and get into that you know, how do you measure where you are on that journey? So, um, I, I, sorry, Tom, I can't remember what the what your URL of your your site was, but I'm going to take a, a proper look at that after this as well, and see what I can conjure up as a starting point to deal with the teams that I work with um, pretty much straight away. Great, yeah. The URL of the site is psychsafety.co.uk. There's also a bunch of stuff at tomgarity.co.uk, which is my own blog. I think if I wanted to wrap up, if I was going to wrap up the the rationale for for psychological safety in one sentence, it would be that high performing teams aren't happy because they're high performing. They're high performing because they're happy. Happiness precedes success. Bravo, sir. So thank you once again, Tom, for joining us. That's been a brilliant hour or so that we've been recording this although what people will be listening to will probably not be that long <laughs> thank you our listeners for listening to the agile engineering podcast uh, you can let us know what your thoughts on psychological safety are or your experiences around that in your business or in your life or you can suggest topics for discussion by getting in touch with us on twitter at at agile Eng podcast going to our website which is agileengineeringpodcast.com or you can contribute directly on our github repo github.com forward slash agile engineering podcast uh, if you like the show and you like what you've heard today uh please consider contributing to our patreon which is patreon.com forward slash agile engineering as well thank you once again for listening and we'll talk to you again soon